All right, so before we, uh, before we jump into the Bible this morning, um, one of the things I want to do today is I just want to take time again. We did this last week, but I want to take time again. I want to pray uh, for what's going on in Ukraine and the countries uh, surrounding it, the humanitarian crisis that's unfolding. And so uh, would you join me in prayer, please? Jesus, we thank you that that you show up in times just like these, and that your nearness is often found in our greatest struggles. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be near to the people who are fleeing for their lives on the other side of the planet. Lord, I pray that you would be near to those displaced who've been... uh, removed from their homes in the face of war, who fear for their lives of their children. Lord, I pray that you would bring safety to those traveling. I pray for those in uh, the neighboring countries. I thank you for how welcoming they have been to these refugees, and I pray that you would Honestly, I pray you would use believers and churches all over both Western Ukraine, uh, Poland, uh, Moldova, all the countries that surround Ukraine, that it would be an opportunity for somehow the light to shine in the darkness. Lord, I pray for protection for those fighting in the war. Lord, I pray that there would be an end to the senselessness of what we see. I pray for churches, for missionaries, for relief workers to have all they need, both financially and even physically, to be able to meet needs in this time. Lord, I know that there are so many people who believe in you in that part of the world. Somehow, some way, through all of this, I pray that their faith might provide light in the darkness, even, even to those of us on this side of the planet. Lord, again, I just lay our world at your feet. In a lot of senses, wars and rumors of wars are nothing new. But that doesn't mean we're calloused about them. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bring an end to this one. Lord, I pray for the people of Ukraine. I Honestly, I pray for the people of Russia. So many who've, on both sides, just held captive. Lord, I pray that you would bring peace, ultimately. And Jesus, I thank you that one day you will return to do just that. Bring ultimate peace to our world. We thank you. We find our hope in you. We pray for uh, 
again for you to be near to those who are fleeing for their lives at the moment. Lord, we feel so helpless on our side, but we thank you that we can pray and that that's not helplessness. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You know, there are many ways that we can pray. Uh, much of uh, what I've just prayed, um, at least you know, some highlights of it, come from a prayer guide that, that we have at the back. We provided that prayer guide last week. You're welcome to continue to pick that up and take it with you. Um, Barry Cole has been providing some great updates from friends and partners uh, that he and Jeannie have over in that part of the world, and it's been really eye-opening to think about ways to make a difference. If you're in a place where you're so inclined financially to say, hey, somehow, some way, you know, I want to give some funds that make a difference somewhere there, we have both Baptist partners on the ground through um, an organization uh, that's a part of our Baptist partners called Send Relief. Uh, it works with churches and church plants uh, up and down that side of both western Ukraine and eastern Poland and uh, various other countries there. Uh, I know uh, Barry and Jeannie's friends could use the support as well. One way or another, if you give and mark you know, Ukraine crisis or something that would tell us what that's for, we will make sure it gets to those who really are making a difference. Um, I know sometimes those opportunities, we feel helpless. We want to do something, but we want to know it goes to good use. We'll make sure that certainly happens um, if you're so inclined. Um, so I want to encourage you as uh, we transition here just a little bit to open your Bibles uh, to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. And I want to ask you um, this, I guess. When you look around the chaos in our world, or you look around in the chaos of your own life, do you ever wonder if you know what you're doing? <laughs> of course you do. Of course you do. I look around in my own life all the time and think, what in the world are you doing? But let's go deeper than that. Do you ever look upward in God's direction and ask him, do you really know what you're doing? Are you sure you really know what you're doing? Because if it's the headlines of what's happening in Ukraine and Russia, if, if it's not the headlines, but the personal lines, the, the, the things in your own soul, in your own body, you know, the brokenness that happens in your own life, it's super easy to look in God's direction and wonder, God, do you really know what you're doing? Because it seems like the world is falling apart or my world is falling apart. And thinking about just in our church family, those who've had surgery in the last week, those who are home with pneumonia in the last week, those who are home writhing in, in unspeakable pain. That's not to belittle what's happening in the crises around the world, but it is to mention that some of those we love here in our community have a crisis at home. And when we go through those kinds of crises, sometimes it feels like God's activity in our life 
slows. That doesn't mean it does. I just prayed that people would sense his nearness. Sometimes we find our greatest spirituality in moments of crisis. But also, if I'm honest, sometimes our greatest doubts happen in those same moments. So what does the Bible say? Well, before we get to Daniel 8, I want to read this from Isaiah 46 for you. Isaiah 46, God says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other, and I am God, and there is none like me. Notice God repeated himself there. When your parents repeat themselves, there's usually something going on that didn't write, you know? God says, verse 10, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey from a far-off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about, and what I have planned, that I will do. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, you who are now far from my righteousness. The people have not returned to him who struck them, nor have they sought the Lord Almighty. And, and that text goes on. But I just want you to catch that God says very clearly that basically he will do what he has planned. That nothing thwarts that. But I would recognize that what God has planned happens in God's time, not our time. And that's one of the themes we're seeing emerge as we study the book of Daniel. Likewise, God's plan involved this, right? That ultimately, Jesus said, we talked about this last week, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that the Son of Man came not to be served as King of Kings, but to serve and to give his life, to lay down his life as a ransom for many. This is, this is no accident. None of what takes place in the book of Revelation that we read about ultimately will happen by accident. None of what we read about when we read the book of Daniel happens by accident. Now, before we get into some of the prophecy that, that we're going to experience, we're going to read about today, and I'm going to be honest with you, I don't always feel... <laughs> Like, I'm going to approach, I will tell you this in just a second, I'm going to approach everything we're going to talk about prophecy-wise today, I'm going to approach it with humility. Because I can't tell you that, that, I can, that I can tell you all of God's plan. I can tell you that God's word says what it says and that we should be confident in that and we should trust that. But I'm not one who takes uh, the kinds of prophecy we're going to read today or the kinds of eschatology, frankly, that we're going to study to look at it and go, oh, well, that means this and this and this and this. Here's the map and let me, I mean, I can't tell you how many books I've seen sort of, you know, the back of a book on, on the, the study of the end times has a map that rolls out and you sort of know that, well, this happens, then this happens, then this happens. And 
What I do know is when we study scriptures and we think about every time humans said to Jesus, when is the end going to happen? Tell us about the time. Tell us about the dates. Jesus was intentionally vague to the point of saying, no one knows the time, not even the sun. And then he redirects people consistently. So let me, let me just say it this way. I think we've got to put our thinking hats on for just a moment this morning. One of the, one of the criticisms sometimes of my preaching, if, if I'm just honest, is that people will say, Brian, you don't go very deep very often, right? And, and I, okay, whatever. I believe the Bible is deep enough that the most seasoned saint can swim around in it for the rest of eternity and never really exhaust all that is there. I likewise believe that the Bible is shallow enough that the, the lowliest of infants can come to understand its basic truths regarding Jesus and God and who God is and what God is like. But I do think this morning, if we're going to begin to understand literature like Daniel and Revelation, what the Bible, uh, what theologians from who study the Bible would call apocalyptic literature, this highly symbolic literature that depicts prophecy regarding the person of Christ, that we we have to think wisely about what we read. So here's what I want to point out to you today. In fact, this is the one thing I really want to make today about. He makes known, God makes known, the end from the beginning precisely because he is God. But really, if you think about it, it, it would be in the nature of God to be able to make known the end from the beginning. And I, while we're just thinking about that, I want you to think about Jesus, who from the beginning told his disciples, the Son of Man will be betrayed. That even when all of the disciples were in the place of going, no, 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 stop talking about this death stuff. Jesus was saying, no, this is going to happen. It's precisely because he is God that he can make known the end from the beginning. Does that make sense? It's precisely, if we're going to think about the logic that goes with this, precisely because I am not God, that I cannot make known the end from the beginning. But it's a gift we often wish we had, if we're honest. We often wish we could just say, well, I know it's all going to work out, or I know that, that, I know that God's going to do this, this, this. And it, it's very human nature to not only want to understand the grand story of God's plan, but to want to know all of the details. We love the juicy details, don't we? But we also speculate a lot. So very quickly, let me just give you, and I'm going to tell you right up front, I, I don't even know if I brought my little outline uh, up here today. I, I have my written one, and I have my like never-ending notes. which that's, I'm pointing that out to point out to you that I doubt... I'm going to make it to the end of the notes today. I doubt I'm going to make it to the end of the outline today. I'm, I'm just being honest, especially knowing that I wanted to take time and pray uh, for what's happening in the world today. So let me give you four keys for understanding the second half of the book of Daniel. 
Some four keys for understanding Daniel 7 through 12. Uh, we were in Daniel 7 last week. We'll be in Daniel 8 today once we dive into that. Four keys for understanding this. Number one, I want to encourage you to understand. This is our thinking hats, right? We are capable of deep thinking. Even Brian is capable. We must understand the difference between prophecy and eschatology. Now, I'm using these words theologically here. I'm using them on purpose. Let me give you some definitions. Right up front, I'm going to tell you that eschatology is the study of the last things. Eschatology is the study of the end times. Biblically speaking, of course, the end times began when Jesus ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit came and the church was birthed. We've been in the end times for thousands of years. It's important that we understand that when we come to Scripture and we begin to think about the timing of these things. Eschatology is the study of end times. Prophecy, on the other hand, we think of prophecy as sort of the ability to predict. That a prophet is someone, in, in this sense, who predicts the future, right? But I want to show you, I want to remind you that prophecy is not only foretelling of the future, it is, it is speaking forth God's word. And so when we speak of prophecy technically, we're speaking of that which is inspired, the, the speaking or writing by divine inspiration. Right? I mean, I, I looked up in one of the technical dictionaries, a bunch of them actually. I got, I got long definitions like an oral divine message mediated through an individual that is directed at a person or people group intended to elicit a specific response. Yeah, thank you, theologians. <laughs> Prophecy, reception and declaration of a word from the Lord through a direct prompting of the Holy Spirit and the human instrument thereof. Prophecy, to speak or write by divine inspiration. That one actually came out of the plain dictionary. I, I appreciate that definition. To speak or write by divine inspiration. I actually, you know, it, it, have, have, you, have you ever met preachers that are one-trick ponies? Meaning like every sermon always comes back to whatever their favorite subject is. And so, you know, if their favorite subject is eschatology in the end times, then, then, you know, I mean, they're talking about marriage and it's about the end times. They're talking about money and it's about the end times. They're talking about, you know, any place in the Bible, you open it and it's about, it's about the end times, right? It, some preachers... Or, or one-trick ponies for the end times. I, I got to thinking this week, what would be my one-trick pony? And, 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 and my honest answer is, I don't really know. I think it'd probably be like love or grace. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that's better, honestly. But what I get excited about is that God speaks through his word. That's the point of prophecy. That when we gather together and we study the word of God, that God speaks through his word. That really matters. And so we have to understand the difference between prophecy and eschatology because, because one is the big umbrella and the other is this tiny portion that fits under the big umbrella. Number two, we can approach prophecy with confidence using these definitions. 
We can approach the speaking of God's word where God has inspired what is in his word. We can approach that with confidence, but we should approach our eschatology with humility. It's what I said a while ago. When it comes to like, you know, maps that sort of fold out of the end of the Bible or out of the end of the book and we go, I'm going to approach all of that with a whole lot of humility because, you know, I mean, I... I read Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, and, you know, I mean, the, the grasshoppers are helicopters, and, you know, I've read these things. I, I rem- I'm, I'm old enough to remember 88 reasons Jesus is going to come back in 1988. I'm also old enough to remember 89 reasons Jesus is going to come back in 1989, which leads me to just this third point, that speculation isn't always our friend, that Speculation can make us prideful, and often it leaves us with egg on our face. I love the feeling when I'm eating in public, and I have food running down my face, and I don't know it. (laughs) Biblically speaking, a prophet, in their prophecy, is never, ever wrong. Biblically speaking... A true prophet, because there were plenty of false prophets, a true prophet was the one who was never, ever, ever wrong. Yet when it comes to eschatology these days, plenty of people are wrong all the time, but they want us to buy the next book. Number four, the primary point of prophecy is to increase my confidence in Jesus so that I will trust him through suffering. The primary point of prophecy is to increase my trust in Jesus, my confidence in Jesus, so that I will trust him through suffering, so that I can endure. This is where I think it's worth asking again. Wait, 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 Brian. Are are you saying that the point of prophecy isn't to map out all the details? That's exactly what I'm saying. It isn't. But, 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 but isn't mapping out all the details about the end of time, isn't that the point of, of what we read in Revelation? Isn't that the point of what we read in Daniel? I would say no, it's not. If, if the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation only apply to people at the end of time, then they would have been meaningless to the people they were originally written to. And they were deeply hopeful to those they were written to. But I would note for you, who they were written to were people who were suffering. Suffering greatly. And when you have suffered, you know that in those moments, when you seek God in suffering, there is something incredibly comforting about being reminded that God is still God. It's why I began this morning, at our announcement time, I I, I said I was preaching, right? I was talking about rest. It's just good to remember that we can trust Jesus. Over and over and over, Jesus is asked by the disciples and by others about the time of the end about the when are these things going to happen those kinds of things like one of those acts acts chapter one 
right? They gathered around Jesus. They said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said, look, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. You know this verse, right? Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What, what God is getting at there, what Jesus is getting at there, is that we so often want to map out the details of certain things, and Jesus is saying you're obsessed with the wrong stuff. You're obsessed with this over here. If you really want for the end to come, if you really want for everything to be fulfilled that needs to be fulfilled, what you really should do is focus on being fruitful for the kingdom. I'm not saying we shouldn't study eschatology and the end of time. I'm not saying we can't have good-spirited discussion about, you know, several of you like, really enjoy the study of eschatology and have talked to me about that. I'm good with that. I'm great with that. But our eschatology should always motivate us, number one, to be watchful for Jesus. Number two, to be hopeful about Jesus and what he's doing. And number three, to share the hope we have in Jesus. If my eschatology, to be specific, doesn't motivate me to share about Jesus, then I'm thinking it's about me and not about the mission Jesus came to do. I'll, I'll get off my little high horse for a second. I'm not, I'm not saying this to us because any one of you has a wrong perspective about eschatology. I've just been in plenty of churches over a lot of years where all someone wants to talk about is their one-trick pony. So let's, let's, let's come at Daniel chapter 8, and let's look at it from the perspective of what God, I think, is really trying to say. And I'm going to tell you straight up, I don't personally think chapter 8, chapter 9 are about the end of time. They are as they reference in them about the time of the end. I think that's something different. Daniel chapter 8. Before I read it, I think I, what I really want us to get, I will say this over and over and over in the coming weeks, is that the Bible has a way of telling us about some bit of history or prophesying about some bit of history. And if we really pay attention to the rest of history, what we notice is that that history from the Bible tends to repeat itself over and over and over again. That somehow the people of God never learned the lesson they were supposed to learn, and the world God created never learns the lesson it was supposed to learn. And when Daniel tells us what happened back in some subset of time, He's also telling us what always happens in our world. So let me just show you really quickly some already fulfilled prophecies from Daniel chapter 8, chapter 9. I doubt I'm going to get to 9, especially seeing what time it is. Number one, God predicts the rise of Alexander the Great. Have you, anybody remember history? You, you remember Alexander the Great. Any, anybody? anybody? You've heard Alexander the Great, right? Right? The Greek leader that swept through as fast as you could think across the known world of his day, dominated everyone, died at a young age. What, 
what Daniel 8 does is Daniel happens, the book of Daniel happens long before Alexander the Great ever lived. Long, long, long before Alexander the Great ever lived. God, through Daniel, gives this prophecy that one will come that we will in history call Alexander the Great. Actually, this is what he calls himself. Daniel's perspective, it was out in the future. From our perspective, it's back in the past. It's much easier for me to look back into the past, Daniel looking out into the future. Daniel actually looks out in the future. He's overwhelmed by it because he can't understand these things. This is how I feel when I look out into the future as well. I can't understand these things, but I know my hope is found in God. But when I look back, I can read these prophecies about ones like Alexander the Great or Antiochus Epiphanes we're going to read about in a minute, and I can read them knowing that God all along knew what he was doing, that all along God had a plan. And the pattern you'll notice in what we read today is that suffering happens for the people of God, but at some point God intervenes. So let me read Daniel chapter 8 just give you an idea of what this says. Chapter 8, verse 1, in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, so this is a couple of years after chapter 7, because he said he was in the first year there, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. And in my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam, and in the vision I was beside the Ulai Canal. And I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns, Really? We're back to the horns? Yes. And I, I think I told you my story about a ram several months ago. We were, we were uh, over on the coast. At, at, what is that place called? The, it's the game park that's, that's down south of Coos Bay. And they, they have a, you wander around, you see these animals. I had a ram come up and make friends with me, just rammed into my thigh like you wouldn't believe. I bruised so dark purple. This is, we complain to the people, hey, this ram, he's like running over people. They're like, oh, we're sorry. Is he doing that again? I love petting zoos. So I looked up before me, and there was a ram with two horns standing along uh, beside the canal, and the horns were long, and one of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later, and I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south, and no animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. And it did as it pleased, and it became great. Now, this is before we get to Alexander the Great. He is, he is saying, in fact, we don't have to really have question about what this means, because later he's in this chapter, he's going to tell us who this is. That He's giving us specifics about the rise of the Persian Empire. That the Persian Empire conquered everyone north, south, and west from its direction. That the Persian Empire would rule the world. This is while the Babylonian Empire is ruling the world of the day. He is saying the Babylonian Empire will fall. And the Persians will come and will rule the world. Really the Medo-Persian Empire. And quite honestly, that takes place during the book of Daniel. Because this is out of sequence, sequentially. Like the book of Daniel is not arranged chronologically. And so by the time you're in Daniel 6, which I realize is before Daniel 8, 
The Medo-Persian Empire is already conquered. He tells us that the ram did as he pleased and magnified himself. That magnifying himself is sort of a key phrase because you're going to notice it repeated over and over and over that these leaders of the world, when they begin to take charge of everybody else, really begin to think much of their own greatness. Again, this is all before Alexander the Great. I'm going to pick up. Did as it pleased, became great. Verse 5, as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with prominent, with a prominent horn between its eyes, it's a unicorn goat, came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. And it came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. And I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. And the ram was powerless to stand against it. And the goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it. And none could rescue the ram from its power. And the goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. What? So let's make sense of this. In fact, later chapter 8 explains to us that this is the Persian Empire, uh, is the ram, that the Greek Empire is the goat. I know, I know, I know. I thought this was about Tom Brady. Right, the goat. I just want you to notice here, before I run back through a couple of the details, that uh, just a general observation about this is that human greatness from a human perspective is often thought of about as power, as conquest, as asking others to lay down their life so that your name can be great. This is true of the kings of the world. It is, however, not true of the king of kings who would lay down his life for us as a demonstration of his greatness. Right, so in the 300s BC, Alexander the Great consolidated Greek forces and attacked Persia from the west. He is the one with the horn between his eyes. It says he was enraged, this would be Greece. It struck the ram that there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Alexander the Great took an army of 50,000 elite Greek soldiers and he set out to conquer Persia, who was their great enemy, who had dominated them already at times. Interestingly, according to the great historian Josephus, who was a Jewish historian from the first century, when Alexander the Great made his way to Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem opened their Bibles to him to Daniel chapter 8, and showed him the prophecy of one who would conquer the Persians. And his armies marched through Jerusalem without hurting a soul. Interesting the descriptions that it uses here. Suddenly a goat with a prominent horn, horn represents power between its eyes, came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. You get the sense that this all happens with lightning fast speed. 
Actually, chapter 8 tells us that this is the Greeks. And by history, we would know this would be Alexander the Great. But what's interesting about that is that that same kingdom is prophesied in chapter 7 and referred to as a leopard. Leopards are known for its and its speed, right? Able to move so fast. Alexander's life would be brief. He died at the age of 32 or 33. His influence in spreading Greek culture still lasts to this day. He came with his armies against Persia with savage fury, powerful wrath, as it says here, verse 6 and 7. He quickly, decisively defeated and destroyed the Persian Empire. Verse 7 uses words that are very vivid. It infuriated, struck, and breaking, and threw to the ground, and trampled. Indeed, there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. So you would just get the idea here that the ram, who was once powerful and conquered the whole world, now is powerless because he is conquered by another empire. Alexander the Great and Greece do become great and powerful almost overnight, but at the pinnacle of his power, Alexander died. It said the large, hand, the large horn was, was broken. You, you get the sense here, verse 8, the goat became very great at the height of its power. The large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Interestingly, this is exactly what happened that after the death of Alexander the Great, the Greeks <laughs> divided their territories essentially in four directions. The, the generals who served under Alexander the Great took different parts of the world. In fact, I, I, Craig, we got a map on this? I think we do. Don't try to read it. It's in like Latin or something. But I would just note for you that in the colors here that we get down here, Egypt, you would recognize Right, the Mediterranean Sea, Israel's in this area here. Persia's over here. Greece is over here. Turkey's here. Interestingly, the Black Sea is here. Crimea is here. And the Ukraine is here. All right, nothing changes in the world. People have always fought this side of the world. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not demeaning what happens or what's happening in the war. I, I just, this, there's nothing new under the sun. So the kingdom was split four ways. One leader would rule Egypt, another leader would rule Mesopotamia, another leader would rule western Turkey, uh, interestingly where Ephesus is that we read about in the New Testament, another leader would rule Greece. And, and what I really want to note for you is that the leader of the south in Egypt and the leader of the north in, in Mesopotamia often fought over the strip of land that we end up calling Israel that sits down in here. That this was, this, was, this was before it ever happened, predicted. He said that leaders would emerge from the four winds of heaven, north, south, east, and west. Indeed, this did happen. Ptolemy gained Egypt. I'm not sure I can pronounce it, but Lysimachus ruled Thrace and Asia Minor. The Seleucids got Syria and Mesopotamia and Persia and Cassander took Macedonia and Greece. And eventually the kingdom of Greece was divided into two, north and south. And so we end up by the end of the book of Daniel reading about the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And 
I just want you to see that we can look at this with confidence because it's already been fulfilled that much like the prophecies regarding Jesus himself, that God spoke and these things happened. And it's much easier to look backwards and connect the dots, if you will. God predicted the rise of Alexander the Great. Number two, I just want you to see that God predicts the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes. That's a fun name to say out loud. Antiochus Epiphanes. That actually was not his name. It's the name he took on. He was Antiochus IV, and he insisted that he be called Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God made manifest. Epiphanes essentially means God in the flesh. Read this with me. Verse 9. Out of one of them, this would be out of the the Seleucids who took over um, the area where Israel is. Out of one of them came another horn much time later, which which started small but grew in power to the south and the east and toward the beautiful land. The beautiful land would be Israel, Judah. It grew until it reached the hosts of the heavens and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. Very vivid terminology. And it set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. And it took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Now, I would just note for you, this implies that there is in Israel, at the time this is being prophesied, a a temple where worship was happening, where sacrifice was happening. That temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians, and there was no temple in Daniel's day. So he's prophesying that there will be a temple again, that there will be sacrifices again, but there will be a leader who comes after Alexander the Great sometime later who sets himself up as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. And this leader will take away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and the sanctuary will be trampled down. And because of the rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. And this leader prospers in everything it did and the truth was thrown to the ground. Daniel says, Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. And he said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. That may refer to 2,300 evening and morning sacrifices. So some debate exists about whether we're talking about 2,300 days or 1150 days, half of that. While I, Daniel, was watching, he said, it will take 2300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. I'm going to show you in a second, but this, what actually takes place here is what we call Hanukkah today. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, trying hard, you are probably trying hard to understand it too, There before me stood one who looked like a man, and when I heard a man's voice from Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this this man the meaning of the vision. And as he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified, and I fell prostrate, and he called me son of man. Son of man, he said to me, understanding that this vision concerns the time of the end. Again, I pointed this out a while ago. I want to note for you, it doesn't say concerns the end of time. 
So the time of the end of what? I'm going to suggest to you that it's talking about the time of the end of the Old Covenant and that we will get around to that in chapter 9 as well. While he was speaking to me, verse 18, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. He was exhausted by all of this. I felt that way a couple of times trying to figure this out. Then he touched me and he raised me to my feet and he said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. Now he's going to explain it. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. This is how we know that the, the ram is the Persians, Medo-Persian Empire. The shaggy goat, <clears throat> now you know that shaggy is in the Bible. Like, yeah, man. No, that wasn't very good. It'll work on that. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is its first king, Alexander the Great. And the four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from this nation, but will not have the same power. And in the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. Now, I I more than realize that people believe that there's like some time gap here and that this now is suddenly telling us not about what happened back then, but what will happen in the future someday. Maybe, because what happens in the book of Daniel is something that continues to happen in all of history. But my belief is this is still telling us in the latter part of his reign, it's put specifically in a matter of time, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue will arise, and he will become very strong, but not by his own power. And he will cause astounding devastation and succeed in whatever he does, and he will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. And he will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. And when they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes, against God, essentially. And yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. And the vision of the evening and the mornings has been given to you as true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. And indeed it did. This was hundreds of years from Daniel's time. And I, Daniel, was worn out, and I lay exhausted for several days, and I got up, and I went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision, and it was beyond understanding. Yeah. You think? I mean, kings with horns and... So let me just tell you why I think this is Antiochus Epiphanes. The kingdoms indeed, the Greek kingdom was split four ways. Much like the map I showed us just a minute ago. I want you to notice that this king, this master of intrigue, is described with three qualities that I'm going to call the unholy trinity. Because this unholy trinity, if you think about it, ends up describing lots of kings of the earth who decide that they want to plow over all others. The first aspect is pride. He's clearly spoken of. He'll become very strong, not by his own power. He'll cause devastation to the holy people. He'll cause deceit to prosper. He will be destroyed eventually, but not by human power. He is described as a very prideful leader, both in the first description of him and here in the second. 
Number two, he claims to be God, right? This is where he claims to be equal with the prince of princes, that he's going to battle against God. And number three, his, he, he, he aims destruction at God's work and God's people. He's fighting against God, against God's work and God's people. This is, this is what I'm going to call, I am probably certain I didn't invent this. I don't know where this came from. I just can't attribute it. But the unholy trinity, pride and the claim to be God and destruction aimed at God's people. I do believe that the one that the Bible will call, we think of as the Antichrist, the end of time, will have this same unholy trinity. But <clears throat> we can name leaders in our day who do the same. Whether we're thinking about Adolf Hitler in the 1900s or leaders today. We should be weary, wary really, of those who are full of pride, who claim to be God, and who aim destruction at God's people. What's interesting here is that he is saying in detailed prophecy that this leader will come in, will fight with God's people, and will stop the sacrifices. This is precisely and exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He was a ruler from the Seleucid Empire many, many, many years, hundreds of years, really, uh, 150 years or so. I'd have to check the dates on that. But after Alexander the Great, he reigned from 175 to 163 BC. He severely persecuted God's people. He took the title Epiphanes. I told you it means God manifest, your God made man. The Hebrew people called him Antiochus Epimemes, which means the madman. His persecution of Israel began around 170 B.C. It lasted right at seven years. He grew in power and pride. He grew, as it says here, as high as the heavenly army. That reference to the stars would be a reference to God's army. He brutally persecuted God's people. He stopped the daily worship, the daily sacrifice in the temple. He destroyed God's sanctuary. He threw literally God's truth to the ground, counting it as worthless. For a time, he was successful in what he did. That whole reference to 2,300 evenings and mornings, that may mean something like seven years. I think more likely it means 1,150 days, the morning and evening sacrifice. In 168, the temple was desecrated. In 164 BC, it was cleansed and restored you know, he actually went into the temple and set up a worship of Zeus, right? Sacrificed a pig, which would be anathema to Jewish people in the temple. And the worship of himself and Zeus because he considered himself Zeus in the flesh. Give me like two more minutes and I'll pray. This is just worth seeing. This is just worth seeing. All of this took place. And it takes place in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, if you're looking at time. 
in what we call the inter intertestamental period. Again, 164 or so B.C., there were, over those years, 167 B.C., those who fought back against Antiochus and his forces. They were called the Maccabeans. You might have heard of them. The Maccabean Revolt. Judas Maccabeus led, Matthias rather, was called the Hammer. I don't have time to tell you where that comes from. But Antiochus underestimated the strength of the Maccabees people. The forces. He sent a small force to put down their rebellion. His forces were annihilated. He led a more powerful army in battle only to be defeated again. In 164 BC, the Maccabees recaptured Jerusalem and they purified the temple. And there's a whole story about how they went into the temple. Do you know this story? There was not enough oil to burn in the temple of the Lord, and they had a very, very, very small, limited amount of oil and yet it burned for a length of time miraculously. They, they call this, this became a festival, a celebration in Jewish life called the Festival of the Lights, the Festival of Dedication. It's Hanukkah. That's precisely it. In fact, what's interesting about this, and this is part of why I think this was worth just tacking on here, is that in John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. John 8, 12. Do you know when that happened? It happened during the Feast of Dedication. It happened during the Festival of the Lights. It happened during Hanukkah. That Jesus was celebrating the Maccabean Revolt and God's provision reminding his people that even in their deep suffering, that he was still in charge and he still knew what he was doing and that he was still the light of their lives. Jesus comes along and says, that's me, I'm the light of the world. For all the people who want to say Jesus never claimed to be God, you just, you just got to read it. We don't have enough time to finish. I told you it wasn't going to happen. But what I want you to see is that all along God knew what he was doing. Because all of this prepared the way for the coming of Jesus the Messiah. We'll see that next week. Can we, can we just, just tell me you'll come back next week. Even, even if you're planned out of town, just tell me you're coming back next week. That helps my ego. Okay. Okay. So it's worth coming back, I promise, chapter 9. I want to end with our two prayers as we always do. If you need the light of the world in your life, if you need to know that the suffering is real in this world, but suffering has a limit and that God can work in your soul, much like he did in these people back in the day. If you need God to work in your life today, he can right here, right now. You can receive him. It's worth noting that Antiochus Epiphanes said he was God in the flesh, full of pride, claimed to be God. He destroyed God's people and God's work. Jesus was the exact opposite of that that Jesus laid down his life because we destroy God's work in our souls. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he was not prideful at all. If you need Jesus today, maybe you'd pray and receive him. Pray with me just like this. Dear Jesus, thank you for coming, for dying for my sin. I put my faith in you, 
and I ask you to be the light of my life. And so take over my life. Be God in my life. And manifest God in my life. Make me like you, Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Every time someone prays to become a believer in Jesus, heaven celebrates and so do we. And so whether you're online or here in the room, we'd love to talk with you about that. You can let us know on a communication card. You can tell someone who invited you. You can seek me out. I'll be available after service. You can, you can talk with almost anybody here. We would love to talk with you about that. You can even email me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at HarvestChurchEugene.com. I know a lot of us prayed that prayer quite a while ago. I don't want to come back to where we started. You need to know, you need to be confident that God has a plan. Maybe you'd pray this prayer along with me. Dear Jesus, thank you that you came willingly, purposefully. Help me to always remember that you have a plan, not only for my salvation, but for my ultimate good. So give me the faith to trust that plan even when my world is falling apart. And when I'm not sure what you're doing, all the more be the light of the world in my life. Jesus, we pray again that you'd be the light of the world in Ukraine right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to end it there today. Uh, I think Rachel had a pretty good idea that this was uh, not going to run short. And so, so I'm going to dismiss this here today. But as I do, I want you to go not only in the hope, but the confidence that we can trust Jesus even when we suffer. Go in that confidence. I love you guys. See you next week.